Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to sit here as your children at your feet and to learn your word. This is a privilege. Please help us not take this ever for granted. We thank you for sharing your wisdom and even your secrets with us, your children, your adopted ones. And most of all, Father, we're grateful and thankful that you did what you did, willingly sending your son to suffer on our behalf. We thank you for the gift of eternal life. We ask that you help us live in that eternal life right now and every day to you be the glory. We ask that you bless this message tonight. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Okay, the Lord is our confidence, part five. So we're going to jump right into our review from Sunday. And uh, if you didn't know, Sunday's uh, lesson did not come through on the audio portion. So you uh, wouldn't, would not be able to listen to it again. So uh, this will be a good review, a valuable review for many, I'm sure. And uh, the Spirit's also added in some neat uh, points and verses, as usual. So first of all, let's just kick it off this way. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, emphasis mine. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. So this has been a recent theme, a recent reminder of how the Lord becomes our confidence. Uh, it doesn't just happen. There's a relationship being built between each of us and God, and that relationship is based on humility, and fear of God is right hand in hand with humility. And as mentioned last week, this statement on the board was from the wisest man on earth who was graced with wisdom directly from God. And this was King Solomon's conclusion after living a full life on earth, which included both obedience, wonderful obedience, and also some pretty bad disobedience, for lack of a better way to put it. He had both sides of the coin. He succeeded and failed. And at the end of his life, this is what he said for the benefit of us all. And you know how they say you should pay very close attention to the words of a dying man because he's going to be so honest and forthright with you. Well, we don't know that Solomon was dying here when this passage was written, but we do know he was an old man for sure, and he had seen it all by this point. So on Sunday, we also visited his opening to this same book. So remember this point on the board, his conclusion, and turn right now to Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. Ecclesiastes 1, 1. So we visited this on Sunday, and it really gives us a nice perspective to live by as we take things in this world way too seriously at times. So this chapter could be a great reminder to stop taking things in this world so seriously. I mean, there are things we have to do. Uh, there are things we 
our to-do and our routines as unto the Lord, including work and family and church responsibilities. But we should not let the things of this world get, get carried away, get us carried away, uh, away from eternal perspective. So look at Ecclesiastes 1.1. 1, 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. In this series, we are seeking to live life closer with the Lord as our confidence. So rather than clinging to the things in the world, where Solomon sums it up nicely there, there's nothing new under the sun. Stop trying to invent things. Stop trying to, you know, make a big deal out of things that have been going on forever in this world anyway. Don't cling to the things of the world or rely on these things for security or happiness. We're supposed to cling to the eternal one who's the only one that satisfies our soul. And that's the point is where else does your soul get satisfied, receive contentment, receive peace? Um, nothing in the world. Many of us have done our own experiments, as Solomon did. Nothing in the world satisfies the soul except the eternal one. So Jesus wants to be our soul confidence. You could take that either way, S-O-U-L or S-O-L-E. He wants to be our soul confidence, our first love, as we know. And that's the whole point, you know, of this series. The Lord is our confidence. If He's not, He should be. And of course, He can always be so more so in each of our hearts. So the Spirit gave us these verses on Sunday to synthesize on the board. John 14, 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Ecclesiastes 1, 9c. So there's nothing new under the sun. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Cling to him. <laughs> Believe in him. Don't let your heart be troubled by the things of the world. There's nothing new under the sun. Spend time with those verses and see, hopefully, the eternal perspective that God wants us to walk freely in every day. Ask yourself honestly, what can you hang your hat on in this world? I mean, many of you, if you've been into the Word for a long time, you agree that there's nothing you can hang your hat on in this world. 
yet at times we still do cling to certain things, um, even unaware that we're doing so. And that's why we need the Word and the Spirit to keep showing us things. Who can you hang your hat on in this world? No one really, except the Lord, because He's always going to be there and never let us down. He's, he's, he's there now and forever. Even the most faithful person on earth will be there many times for you, but will not be perfect. So the Lord is our eternal confidence because our Lord doesn't change. He's our anchor. The Bible says the very anchor of our souls. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 6.13. Hebrews 6.13. So we're padding our series topic, The Lord is Our Confidence. Now, I was thinking about this, too, before class. The Lord is the opposite of empty. How many times is, um, is him, he and his word described as fullness or experience the fullness of Christ? You see that a lot throughout Scripture. And what do we just read with Solomon, Ecclesiastes 1? Vanity. Emptiness. Nothing there to fill the soul. But he, Jesus, is the total opposite. Can be total fullness and fulfillment for the soul. Look at Hebrews 6.13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So in verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Again, we can have supreme confidence in our souls, if you look at verse 18, it's described as strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. We can have supreme confidence in our souls because the Lord doesn't change. And I know we know that academically, but do we know that in our relationship with Him, in our trust towards Him? I know I don't all the time, that's for sure. But He doesn't change. He never changes. When will we believe Him fully? Satan tries to keep changing things. He tries to uh, interrupt our security, our peace. He induces fear to keep us guessing and getting us to hold on to the wrong things for confidence, the wrong people for confidence. But the Spirit is saying that we must see through all of that. And just think about that for a minute. See through all of that. See through all those lies and deceptions that are right before you that 
that you're tempted to buy again. You're tempted to let them in your soul and give you fear and give you insecurity. See right past them to the Lord who's standing right behind them. You know, kind of like Satan doesn't know it. I was reading in the Old Testament where um, Elijah and Elisha, uh, I believe each of them experienced this when they were confronted by enemies and they were outnumbered by armies. These prophets had behind them chariots of fire that the average person couldn't see. But the mountains were filled with chariots of fire, of, of heavenly chariots and horses and, you know, an army so big and intimidating. And, and God can let people see that army, let the enemy see that army whenever he wants, and they go running. And so we need to see past the things that are right in front of us that we keep giving into the temptation to... Um, put our confidence in and then be shaken again because it, it goes away on us again. We need to see right through it, right through the lies and that the Lord is the only one. And that's, that's the only thing that's going to help us drop those things. So our peace isn't disturbed. So we must see through it all, all the lies of the world that attempt to deceive and captivate us and just simply cling to the one who is the very truth. On Sunday, we were also posed with this question, uh, or similar wording, what will we do with the freedom we've been granted in Christ? If you've been educated in the Word, if you've been in the Word and you've been reading your Bible, you know there's a spiritual freedom we've been given in Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin, for example. We don't have to be slaves to ourselves. We've been purchased. We've been bought. What will we do with the freedom we've been granted in Christ? Will we use it to cater to self or make self comfortable? And I've been thinking about this, you know, in my own life lately. Um, we do a lot of little things to make self comfortable. Things that maybe you wouldn't even point out or someone wouldn't even point out to you and say you're being selfish. But how, how do we use our freedom of time, for example? How much time do we have? If we don't watch TV, we got a ton of time. How much time do we have and what do we do with that time? Ask yourself. I was thinking about television and how television, it's almost like putting a pacifier in a baby's mouth, right? Let me go sit down so I don't have to be bothered by anybody and I can, you know, satisfy myself and be lazy and, and, and do what I want to do and not be bothered, et cetera, et cetera. How about games and entertainment? Is there anything wrong with these things on the surface? No, not really. But if you're a slave to them, there's everything wrong with it, right? So are we catering to self and comfort to self? Is that what we're supposed to do with our freedom? Make sure that we're comfortable every hour of our day? Make sure that we're eating the best of all foods and collecting possessions, building our kingdom on earth? Of course, that's not what we're supposed to be doing, but we do it in very subtle ways. We cater to self. How or what are we supposed to be doing with the freedom we've been granted? We're supposed to be passing on the love of Christ in some way. With our time. With our gifts. And ironically, true joy and blessing comes from that. Not the catering to self part that you think is going to make you happy, but never does. 
on the board, Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We were definitely called to freedom. Now that we have it, will we turn that into an opportunity for the flesh, an opportunity for self, or through love serve one another? What do you think the majority of American Christians live like? Maybe even in this church. I don't know what everybody does in their time, but the majority of American Christians are building their own kingdom on earth, collecting things, stuff, even in the name of calling it blessing from God, all about self, failing the prosperity test. Material prosperity, spiritual prosperity, Freedom, the Word of God. And what do we do with the freedom, those freedoms? We often just use it for self. We hoard it. Even spiritually, we hoard it. I don't need to share the Bible with anybody. You know, I'm my own believer and I'm going to just keep to myself all the time. When we're, we're here to literally be here for others. So the Spirit challenges us in this way. What are you using your freedom for? To the believer who lives by faith and walks by faith, that believer gets the spoils of war, as came out on Sunday. Our victory is by faith. Not just the faith at salvation, but the walking by faith that we do, from faith to faith, in Romans 1.17. On the board, in 1 John 5.4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith opens up all the doors to the victory and the spoils. We have confidence in the Lord because of the victory He has established for us believers once for all at the cross. So now we stand in the light. We stand and we walk in a different way. That's the fact of the matter. We, we don't stand, we don't walk in the same old way we used to walk. We're now delivered. And we now have freedom to use. Before we were believers, we didn't have any freedom to use, to uh, use that power, so to speak, to help others. We didn't have it. We didn't possess it. Go to Romans 8.1 again. Romans 8.1. We know Christ has come to set us free. And this is kind of going to be a recurring theme in the first half of our lesson anyway. Christ has come to set us free. And He has. And what are we using our freedom for? Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk after the flesh, according to the flesh, in other words, according to self, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh 
set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. The Spirit is alive because of righteousness. There's freedom. This brings us back to the deceitfulness of sin, which we're no longer subject to. And now we can live in and by Christ's righteousness. We're now alive in the Spirit, as verse 10 says. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit, who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation with our freedom that was purchased for us. We're under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Again, remember our series title, The Lord is Our Confidence. We have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children... Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. As the Spirit reminded us on Sunday, we are literally children of God. And we also have a family, a spiritual family, that we are secure in. You know, not one of the world or, or of, you know, even our blood relatives came up on Sunday where it's shaky and, you know, there's disagreements and there's lack of harmony. But in Christ, we are united and there's no room for fear because we share the same freedom, really. Fear has been defeated and the Lord is our confidence. Go to 1 Peter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter 1, 3. We read these wonderful... Um, sections of scripture on Sunday and it's really just so refreshing isn't it to just kind of read a whole bunch there in context and just let it wash over you and take it all in and let let the spirit do his work in you first Peter 1 3 blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance 
which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith. There's our victory, remember. Through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. Let's stop there for a second. In this, you greatly rejoice. Do you see how our lifestyles as believers, knowing our freedom in Christ, do you see our lifestyle should be one of joy? I mean, verses 3 through 5 is arguably one of the most encouraging passages in all of Scripture. And then, in this you greatly rejoice, even though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. In other words, you can see past the trials. Remember we talked about that before? You can see right through it, these temporary things that we do need to go through to God's glory, but you can see right past it, and therefore you have a joy. You have a rejoicing. That is the life of a believer, a supernatural joy in the middle of various trials, which we have many people in our own congregation who are suffering right now, especially health-wise, that are experiencing this. Maybe not every day, but I've seen it, I've heard it. It is supernatural joy and peace. The ability to do this thing in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, so there's the proof right there, or the great evidence of our faith, maintaining joy. Maintaining the big picture, even in the midst of various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation or deliverance of your souls. There, my friends, is freedom. The freedom to have joy in the middle of chaotic circumstances. Christ purchased that for us. I have in my notes, can you smell it? Can you smell the freedom? Can you smell what the rock is cooking? And that's actually appropriate, as we're going to see, because we're going to talk about the rock. What was God's plan? What was he cooking for us, if you will? What is freedom supposed to produce in us? We now have freedom from fear, and rather we have great confidence in the Lord and his victory on our behalf. On the board, the outcome of your faith, the salvation or deliverance of your souls. Faith is what makes us victorious over our enemies in this world. We saw 1 John 5, 4. We are saved or delivered daily, remember, by the grace of God. We do not save ourselves, nor do others. We mustn't buy the lie that man is able to deliver himself. And we, again, we know this academically. 
do we personally know this in our relationship with God? When we place our confidence in other people or in self, we then lose our confidence in the Lord. You know, to the degree that we place our confidence in other people or in self, we lose our confidence with the Lord. It's like a sliding scale. Which, who are you tending towards? Which one are you putting more confidence in? We'll never be perfect, but every day, God is hoping. God is working on us to give more and more confidence in the Lord, which means less and less confidence in people. So that's where God's taken us. Our confidence must only be in the Lord, the only one who can truly deliver. And that's the same one, by the way, that gives us faith to begin with. He supplies it all. So the Lord is called the rock throughout Holy Scripture. This also came up on Sunday. He's called the rock for a reason. But he cannot and will not move for anyone. And there's the symbolism, part of the symbolism. And that's why we can stand on him and not be moved or shaken. And we're not talking about, you know, don't picture yourself climbing up on a rock that's the size of this pulpit. That's not what we're talking about. We should instead picture a bedrock under our feet that is the very ground beneath you that literally cannot be moved. And so I pulled up a picture for you just to maybe help give you a visual. The Lord is our rock. He's immovable. And if your freedom is in Him, and that's how immovable He is, then what do we possibly have to fear? We're actually silly. We're actually foolish when we fear. The flesh gets in the way. We're all going to fail. But we are foolish when we fear because we literally have the rock of salvation on our side, the immovable one, the unchangeable one, who made promises to us that he can't break. It's who he is. But here's the thing, is the Lord is so stable like this, but you and I decide where we stand each and every day. Where are, we, where are you going to stand today, tomorrow? What are you going to stand on? On Him as our rock or on the shifting sands of the world? And let's face it, I mean, throughout the day, sometimes we hop back and forth, don't we? We like test the waters. We step off the path for whatever reason, sometimes willingly, sometimes just fully deceived. But the Lord is the only one that's immo immovable. Why would we put our hope in anybody else? He's the only one we can be confident in. Turn to uh, Luke 6.39. Luke 6.39. On Sunday, we spent some time in this passage where the rock himself gives us some wisdom. Luke 6.39. We're kind of changing gears now in our lesson. And he, Jesus, also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher. But everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like 
his teacher. The Spirit led our pastor on Sunday to warn us that if our pastor has been willing to share his failures and his holding on to ungodly things at times, then we should be willing as his pupil to do the same. We should be willing to follow his example, to humbly admit the things in our hearts that have been taking us captive instead of continually looking at others and their failures. It's so easy to learn the Word of God and pin it on someone else, so to speak, when if we just took five minutes to look in the mirror, we might see something that would really help us. So we are called to also humbly admit the things in our hearts that have been taking us captive and not always look at others. Luke 6, 41. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck, take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. There we see the loving, honest truth of the Lord. He confronts us in love, as does our pastor follow his example in that way. Thank God. But make no mistake, it is a confrontation. The Lord here directly calls us hypocrites. He calls us hypocrites. He doesn't beat around the bush. So this is a loving telling of the truth. And in our PC society, many people would say, that's not nice, right? You could have the best intentions in the world and do it as gently as you think you can say it. But if you're going to be honest, you must be honest. And that means direct. And the world would say, that's not nice. So is it nicer to lie to someone, to give them a half truth so you don't hurt their feelings? That's what the world would tell us. But the good Lord didn't mince words, and he would rather have us face the truth. And as we transition now in our lesson, which came up on Sunday, we're talking about here, in this very example, where Jesus says, you hypocrite, we're talking about the grace of a good father telling us the truth about ourselves. Is that not what a good father would do? In this way, and in other ways, God is very kind to us. He's kind to us in so many ways. But this came out on Sunday as well as an emphasis. Sometimes it's, it's, it's harsh and direct like this statement, you hypocrite. And it's actually a form of grace. Sometimes it is seen in patience, what might look like eternal patience with some of us, right? Recently, the Spirit's been reminding me of all the times I've failed in the past and lived selfishly and hurt other people. And yet, I see, as I look back and I, I am convicted by these things, I also see at the same time how patient and kind He was with me over the years. Well, He really should have just crushed me. When I look back at it now, I say, wow, <laughs> why didn't He just, you know, whatever. 
take me out or discipline me harsh, harshly. He didn't even do that many times. His kind, kindness was overflowing, we might say. And looking at my failures and his grace towards me, that's what makes me more and more grateful each day that I'm still alive. And hopefully you can all say amen to that for yourself. I hope it's the same for all of you. Because the more we see our failures and the more we see his grace and patience with us, the more how can we not be more and more grateful and therefore use our freedom for others instead of self. It's a, it's a, a good snowball effect. So again, consider that God is very, very kind to us, extremely so. As came out on Sunday, for example, think about the fact that God did not have to record many of the things that we see in Holy Scripture. There are so many things He did not have to say to us to encourage us, for example. He could have just laid out the facts. But He's a loving Father, and He did so in a fatherly way, which included much encouragement. God was motivated by His love to give us these things in Scripture. Certain treasures and promises on which repentant sinners can stand on. He is the rock. He gave us certain promises and treasures on which repentant sinners can stand on. Let me give you an example in Scripture that the Spirit gave me, something which by grace He had already put on my heart. And I love how He does this. I mean, just, just to encourage you uh, and to let you know the Spirit is working, like through me <laughs> and pastor, is that so many times, it's actually twice this week, where the Spirit puts something on my heart or shows me something a few days before pastor brings it out in his teaching. And it's just, you know, very encouraging to me, but I hope it's encouraging to you too because the Spirit is at work behind the scenes bringing forth the things that need to be at the front. So let me give you an example of something that he gave me. Uh, pastor mentioned on Sunday that God didn't have to go and mention so many wonderful things in the scriptures. So for example, this was what was on my heart uh, last week. Let's see if it still works. There we go. John 14, 1 through 3 in the ESV. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He didn't have to say that. That's grace right there. He didn't have to say that extra explanation to encourage our faith, right? He could have just said, in my father's house are many rooms, and one day you'll be there with me. He could have just said that, and it would have been perfectly fine, quote-unquote. But that's not how a father does things. He does things in a compassionate, leading, helpful way. So he did not have to mention that phrase, if it were not so. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. Verse 2 to me sounds like a father reassuring his son and reminding him, in essence, that he loves him. 
In other words, just trust me. You know, just like a father might say to a son, just trust me, son. You don't see this yet. And there again, we have the sheer kindness of God. And yet we stumble and we fall some days, placing our confidence in the wrong things. But how about we just stay on the rock a little bit longer than yesterday? Isn't that what sanctification is really all about? The process, the progressiveness of it, the day-to-day journey we're on. How about we just stay on the rock a little bit longer than yesterday? Maybe, you know, it might be 10 seconds longer than yesterday. You know what I mean. Don't start timing yourself, okay? But you know what I mean. Think of that mentality. This, t- tomorrow I want to have a little more confidence in the Lord and a little less confidence in the world or in myself. And that's the progression of sanctification. That's being delivered daily more and more. Stand on the rock a little bit longer than yesterday. How about we stand in awe of the kindness of God toward us and overwhelmed with gratitude, we forsake more of the things in this world. That's power right there. That's where the power comes from. It it comes from gratitude, which comes from faith. How about we stand in awe of the kindness of God towards us personally and overwhelmed with gratitude, we then forsake more of the things in this world. We can't do it on our own in the flesh. We can't forsake the things in the world by the power of the flesh. But we can when we have that type of appreciation for the kindness of God toward us. Because He empowers us. He changes our hearts. So day by day, He's working on us. We know He's going to complete the good work in us. And it's great to see all of the faithful faces that are here because it's just a sign of not giving up. It's a sign of uh, persistence. It's a sign of uh, willingness to be worked on. It's almost like we're the clay, right? It's almost like you have to walk to the shop to be worked on. That's what you're doing here. You walked here to be worked on. You couldn't do anything yourself. You're a lump of clay. But you're willing and you're willing to be worked on. And that's a beautiful thing. So, then the Spirit of our Father in Heaven started giving us some fatherly advice on Sunday. We'll review as much as we can on this topic. It was wonderful on Sunday. And I'm sure Saint was happy it wasn't recorded fully on Sunday. But, let's give a well-balanced review as we can. As a general rule, what came out on Sunday is that your business is your business before the Lord. We saw on the board Romans 14.10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That reminds me of Ecclesiastes 12.13. This applies to every person. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Our pastor explained when he gives us examples from his own life, it's not to judge us. It's not to put us on the spot and and condemn us. It's for our prayerful consideration between each of us and the Lord. It's not some type of demand, but a loving example the Lord is pressing him to share. 
And I could just tell you as a teacher, I can relate because sometimes he presses me to share things with you that I really don't want to share, but it's for somebody's benefit. So pastor share with us when he shares these things, it's not to, you know, judge us or put us on the spot to force us to do the things he's doing, but to share as a form of encouragement and, um, pray about it because ultimately we each stand before the Lord. Paul gave us some good guidance on Sunday. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3. 1 Corinthians 4, 3. And remember, Paul, Paul here is speaking about himself, but also as a shepherd and guiding his sheep in the process. 1 Corinthians 4, 3. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. So here we see some true humility. Paul's not saying don't ever examine yourself. We have other scripture that says examine yourself, right? What is he saying? He's saying, even when I'm not conscious of anything against myself, I know there's something that the Lord wants to convict me of that I'm not even seeing. You know? So there's true humility. Paul's saying, instead of saying almost in pride, I'm not doing anything wrong right now. I've been examining myself. I don't see anything. Instead of holding on to that position, he's on the position of God is the one who examines me. And ultimately, I'm going to answer to him. So I'm going to stay open to what he's going to show me, even though I think right now my conscience is clear. Pretty cool example from him as a shepherd. Therefore, in verse 5, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both, both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So it really is between each of us and the Lord. There's no skirting that reality. So Paul was also speaking here as a shepherd, not only of his own spiritual life, but guiding the flock. And he was concerned about his sheep. And as such, he was trying to lead them and even judge them when needed. And you see that many times from Paul the discipline he had to exert over the church that was flopping around, floundering around, just not being godly in certain ways. So this came out as a main point on Sunday, commissioned by the Lord. Commissioned by the Lord. Shepherds have been granted authority by God to judge rightly within the church. And just some examples on the board are Acts 20, 28, Romans 1, 1 and 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 2, and 1 Timothy 3, 5. Shepherds have been granted authority by God to judge rightly within the church. They have been commissioned. They have been given a uh, serious task, a real responsibility. And it is the sheep that have been commanded in the word to submit to the shepherd, we're reminded, not vice versa. 
And there's a certain definite reason for this. There's a certain reason we're called to sit under a pastor's authority. Because we need it. We're not the self-sufficient ones we like to think we are. Acts 20, 28 on the board in the ESV. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers. What does an overseer do? He oversees. It's very technical. He oversees. His job is to oversee, to overlook everything. And guess what? If that's your job, you, you better make some judgment calls. You better do what you think is right for the Lord and for the people. So it's a huge responsibility, obviously. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So we were reminded on Sunday that the shepherd's job before the Lord is to lead his sheep the best he can, which also means the pastor must evaluate individual sheep in a variety of ways over years. You've also got to think of this as big picture. This is another relationship. This is another growing relationship, hopefully, just like between father and son, between pastor and uh, member of the congregation. Uh, between the Lord and us, relationships take time and change over the years. And it's sometimes things are going smoothly, sometimes they're going downhill. And in that relationship, within that relationship, there's a certain discipline that must take place by the God-given authority. Or we're going to get lost or get stuck in the thicket, as Pastor would say. So again on the board, commissioned by the Lord. Shepherds have been granted authority by God to judge rightly within the church. Again, there's a relationship and a process, and the under-shepherd of the Lord has been charged with leading the Lord's sheep. Does anyone here really want that responsibility, by the way? I mean, do you really want to, be, to know you've been called by the Lord to take care of his sheep? And when you think of what some of the things we do and think and say, right, it's just not. A fun proposition. So that's the reality of the situation. To be charged in this way is one of the greatest, you know, one of the greatest, I'll just say, responsibilities in this life that someone could have. And we might consider that before we buck against our pastor's authority or discipline as our flesh likes to react. We saw a couple examples where the pastor or the shepherd needs to step in for the sake of his congregation. So turn again to 1 Corinthians 6.1. You're already in Corinthians, I think. 1 Corinthians 6.1. These are a couple examples from Sunday. Paul says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Why would you want to go to an ungodly courtroom when you could go to the house of God? and be judged by someone that fears God and put it before them. That's what Paul's saying. A more extreme example comes up in 1 Corinthians 5.1. So turn back a chapter to 1 Corinthians 5.1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you 
an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Paul is putting his foot down as the authority, as someone who has to clear up this evil within the church. And if the shepherd isn't willing to step up and do his job in that way, who's going to do it? Where would the church spiral down to if a good shepherd didn't step in in a situation like this? These types of challenges within the church require judgment by a faithful pastor. That's the point. And he's been given authority to serve in this way. As a side note, as we begin to close, I'm not going to get through my whole lesson, but such is life. As a side note, it's funny how we like it when our pastor steps in to protect us from another, but we don't like it when he points out that we might be the problem. As though we're never going to be the problem, right? We all fail. We all need to be corrected at times. We can admit that when we're not in the situation, but once we get in the situation and are, you know, we're pinned, so to speak, our back against the wall, and he's trying to reveal something to us that we're blind to in the moment. It's funny how we kick and scream. So, this is where true humility comes in. True humility. Like the humility Paul had when he said, I examine myself and don't see anything, but it's the Lord who examines me. I'm ready to receive. In other words, I'm ready to receive even discipline I know I need it. If you believe in what the Word of God says, you have to concede and even submit to the fact that what your pastor thinks about your life is very important. If he's to act as a father figure in your life, how could what he thinks about your life not be important? He's been placed in your life as your shepherd, for a valuable reason for your benefit. So something else I want to share with you, and, and we'll probably close with this passage, but this is another one of the things I was telling you that God gave me like a couple days before Pastor taught it, and it's super encouraging. Um, so it fits right in with Sunday's lesson and also with the recent blog entitled Dooley's. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Romans 1.1 1, 1. I was reading my Bible uh, last week, I guess it was, and I just started Romans. I, ended, I finished Acts, I was just starting Romans, and I opened it up and I read the first six words. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. And I, I, I stopped and I closed the book because it just kind of hit me. What's the first way Paul introduces himself as a servant? Not as the apostle, right? Not as all of his other roles in the church. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. So that came right before the Dooley's blog, which was all about servanthood. And then notice it says in verse 1, called as an apostle. 
In other words, commissioned by the Lord. When you're called, you're called, and you know it. And uh, there's nothing more serious when you are convicted that you're called to do a job for the Lord. Paul, as a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Again, look at verse 5. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith. There's a, a picture of the shepherd's job. How do you bring about the obedience of faith in people's lives without exercising the authority that you've been given to do this task? For his namesake, by the way. You can't do your job unless you act as a good father. That's what came out on Sunday. We talked about the nature of fatherhood. And what does the Bible say about it? And we talked about our Heavenly Father and how He both blesses us and disciplines us. We talked about an earthly father, how He must bless and discipline His children to bring them up right and to you know, help them bring glory to Him as the Father, to teach them the right way. So we saw some of the Father's role. We'll just get through a couple of these verses on the board. And I personally thank God that our pastor has such a good balance of these things, where he certainly can be disciplining at times when necessary, and he certainly can be extremely uh, gracious or patient with us at times. Uh, I just can at least speak from personal experience. So like in Hebrews 12, 7 in the Amplified, you must submit to correction for the purpose of discipline. God is dealing with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And in Ephesians 6, 4 in the Amplified, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not exasperate them to the point of resentment with demands that are trivial or unreasonable or humiliating or abusive. That's what an arrogant leader would do. Nor by showing favoritism or indifference to any of them, but bring them up tenderly with loving kindness in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And again, we're talking about three kinds of fathers here, really. God the Father, our earthly or familial father, and a pastor as a father's role. Colossians 3.21 Fathers, do not provoke or irritate or exasperate your children with demands that are trivial or unreasonable or humiliating or abusive, nor by favoritism or indifference. Treat them tenderly with loving kindness so that they will not lose heart and become discouraged or unmotivated with their spirits broken. And we'll close with one more verse. 
I promise. 1 Timothy 3.4. Go to 1 Timothy 3.4. We're right on time. Don't worry if you've got to get home for your TV show. Don't worry. <laughs> that should mean a little bit more to us now. What we see in Holy Scripture is a well, well-rounded responsibility picture, if you will, of a father. And this type of calling is also placed on the shepherd of God's flock. 1 Timothy 3, 4. He, the pastor or the elder, must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity as a father. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? There's the same phrase from Acts 20, 28. Take care of the church of God. How will he do that if he can't take care of his own household? And the point that came out on Sunday on the board is this, regarding 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5. See here that a father must first prove himself worthy in his own household because the analog is to his household fatherhood. I'm sorry, the analog to his household fatherhood is the fatherhood he has over the household of faith. We see here a direct analogy being made. And therefore we can conclude that's the type of a role a pastor or a shepherd should assume in the congregation. The fatherly role. And it's healthy to look at your pastor as having a fatherly role in your life because that's the biblical position he's told to operate from. And so we as children, if you will, or we as students, pupils, we must look at him that way and therefore allow a relationship to grow that way that should be growing that way in a healthy biblical way and be set free by that. Amen? Got it close. Let's bow. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, teaching us and humbling us and showing us how much more we have to learn. We ask, Father, that you convict each one of us individually, that you help us spend time with you alone, some good quiet time in prayer about all the things we're discussing so that we can be obedient to you ultimately, Father, to your glory and to your Son's glory. We ask that you bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thank you.